Well, church, if you uh, are in the habit of worshiping the production, right, God has a tendency to take uh, the little G God out of, out of that for us from time to time. And this morning is, is one of those times. It's a little bit chaotic, uh, but hey, that's what makes it fun, right? If you have your Bible, let's open those up uh, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. As many of you know, last week uh, we wrapped up the book of Acts after spending a pretty good amount of time there. I think uh, if I did the, the math right, I think we spent 39 weeks uh, through going through the book of Acts over the course of the last year. Uh, so, you know, roughly three quarters of that year. Uh, and typically what I like to do is I like to go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, so that we have a good balance of understanding uh, what's going on in the Scriptures. And I, I, I nixed that, uh, actually, as we were going through the book of Acts, because we had done the book of Matthew, and then I wanted to continue on to see what happens after Jesus left the earth and after He had gone back to be at the right hand of the Father. And so uh, my plan originally was to find an Old Testament book, and then move from Acts into that Old Testament book. But before we do that, I wanted to take just a few weeks uh, to see how the churches that began in the book of Acts are doing by the time the New Testament is being wrapped up in its writing, uh, which happens in the book of Revelation. All right, so we're going to take the next seven weeks or so, minus the uh, week off for homecoming, and we're going to take a look at the seven churches that we find that Jesus is speaking to at the beginning of Revelation. And so um, before we dive into that, I want to pray one more time. Uh, and then we'll begin taking a look at the first church, which is the church at Ephesus. All right, so let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be present and that he would... Um, open our eyes to see the truth that are in, in these words and open our ears to hear what you have to say to us and open our hearts to uh, be willing to change whatever is necessary so that we can be aligned uh, with your spirit and with your word, with your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' heavenly name. Amen. So at the end of the book of Acts, Paul's life, we saw him, he's wrapping up, uh, well, he's not wrapping up, he's ending the book of Acts in prison under home arrest uh, in Rome, which is where God said he was going to be going uh, for a long time in his life and a long time in his ministry. God said, hey, you're going to speak before the emperor in Rome. And so as we wrapped up, we saw where Luke had Paul. He's living under house arrest. We, we know that he was there for two years. And all of this happened around 61 to 62 AD. All right, so approximately 30 years or so later, we end up with the book of Revelation. All right? It was probably written somewhere between 90 and 95 A.D. It was written by the Apostle John, who was the only one of the apostles who did not die a martyr's death, uh, but he was exiled by Rome to the island of Patmos uh, because of his uh, nonstop proclamation of the gospel. Uh, so just like they did with Paul, they got tired of the, the mess that the gospel was making in their kingdom. Uh, and so John 
caught the ire of the uh, Roman government and they exiled him uh, to Patmos. And while he was exiled on this island, John received some very crazy visions of things that the Lord was presenting to him regarding the end times, regarding Armageddon, right? The eternal kingdom. John got to see all of this. And some of it is extremely confusing. I don't know how thoroughly you have studied the book of Revelation, but uh, sometimes it'll make your eyes cross as you try to make heads or tails of everything that's going on in that book. Uh, But before he gets into these visions, John receives... uh, words from Jesus for seven churches that are placed in a circular area throughout the throughout the Asian world all right after Paul's work in Ephesus the gospel would have gone from there to these other six churches so Ephesus would have been the mother church and these other churches would probably be daughter churches that were planted because of the work that Paul did in Ephesus And so as we look at this through chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we're going to look at each one of these seven churches. And what you'll find is that Jesus has positive things to say about all of these churches. And through most of them, he also has negative things to say uh, for those. There's only two that did not receive some kind of rebuke in some way. And so we're going to see what the church looked like about 30 years after the, the book of Acts ends. Here we're going to see just a little bit of how the church is faring after 30 years have, has passed. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say to some of these churches. So if you would, look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 with me. It says there, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So right off the bat, we see that Jesus is talking to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And what this seems to imply is that there is part of the heavenly host that oversees the different churches in the different areas. If you think about it, back to the book of Daniel, you see that Daniel is praying for uh, help from God, and one of the angels is coming and he's ran up on by the prince of Persia, which is a a demonic entity that he battled for 21 days before God sent Michael to engage in battle with him. And then he was able to come and deliver the message uh, to Daniel regarding that prayer. He said, as soon as you started praying, I was sent out, but I got met by the, the prince of Persia. And so it seems that there are both angelic and demonic entities that have been given dominion over certain 
certain things, either certain places, certain people, whatever that may be. And there are seven uh, angels that are assigned to each one of these seven churches. And when Jesus is talking about holding the seven stars, at the beginning in chapter 1 of Revelation, we learn that those seven stars are referring to the seven angels. Right? So when, when he says he's holding on to those seven stars and he's walking among the seven lampstands, he's saying, I'm holding the angels and I'm walking among the church. All right? And so it says, um, thus says, so he's talking to uh, the, the angel who is in charge of the church at Ephesus, he says, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So when you see that, what you, should, what you should hear is, Thus saith the Lord. Right? That's a refrain that goes continually throughout the Old Testament. And any time that we hear that, there's some prophecy or prophet that is speaking directly from God. And so here... John is hearing this message that is being written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So uh, first off, we should note that this is authoritative to the church. The, the, the church in Ephesus should be paying close attention to what is written in this letter, what is written to them specifically, because Jesus is the one speaking to them directly. Right? And it says... He's holding the angels of those churches, and that's how these churches are being sustained, right? They're being sustained. God is directing everything that's going to them and through them. And he also says that he's walking among them when he says that he's walking through the lampstands. So we need to be mindful of this, that just because Jesus has gone to be at the right hand of the Father does not mean that he has lost one iota of control or one little instance of his ability to understand what is happening in this church. Right? He is directing these angels. He's walking among the lampstands. He knows everything that's happening. He knows what they're doing right. He knows what they're doing wrong. And because of that, he is taking the time to address both the things that they have done right, the things that they have done wrong, and what's going to happen if they don't change their ways. And so let's take a look, verses 2 and 3. What did they get right? right? This church is doing something right. What, what were they doing right? It says, one, they were doing works of labor. They were, doing, they were persevering. They had endurance. They were not tolerating evil. And they were testing the apostles. So let's take a look at each one of these in order. He says, I know your works and your labor. So this church... Since the time that Paul established it back in chapter 19 of, of the book of Acts, Paul or these people have been striving to live out the gospel in a way that is meaningful to the church and to their community. Right? So we, I've said this many times that there is no faith without works of some kind. And the inverse of that is true as well. Just because you have works doesn't mean that you have faith. And one of my favorite passages to read is James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see, that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in the receiving the messengers and sending them out a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so this church, it does not matter how well they understand the Scriptures. It doesn't matter how much they study the Word of God. It doesn't matter how much they talk about that amongst themselves. If they're not doing something with the information that they have been given, then they're of no earthly good to anything going on in their community. And Jesus says, look, I know your works. I know your labor. I know how you're serving one another. I know how you're serving your community. I have seen it, and it is good. And so he's giving them the the props that they need based on what they have been doing with the information that they've been giving. They haven't been sitting back and just taking everything in. Right? They, they take it in, they take in the mission of God, and then they put their hands and feet to the work that Jesus has set before them. And on top of that, they have endurance. Living in Ephesus was difficult for Christians. I don't know if you remember back, we just wrapped up Acts 28, so I don't know if you remember all the way back to Acts chapter 19, where Paul was engaging in the gospel with this uh, city, and he was there for about two and a half years. Right? But it says there uh, that because the silversmiths were losing money because people were coming to faith, the silversmiths were upset that nobody was buying their idols. And so because of that lack of revenue, and in theory because uh, Artemis was also not being worshipped the way that they thought that she should be, they rose up against the Christians and they started a riot. And they started dragging out people, associates of Paul, into this riot. And Paul wanted to go out into that, but they said, no, don't do that. But we see that, that tensions are high in Ephesus. That there is all kinds of idolatrous worship that's going on there. Uh, much of it involved sexual immorality as they would go to these different temple prostitutes in order to worship. And they where if you spoke out against that, then, then people hated you. And so they were constantly being oppressed. They were constantly being drug out and beaten or imprisoned. Uh, and so Christ is telling them, I have seen the fact that you have endured all of this well. That you are living out your faith in such a way that you are showing no signs of being weary based on everything that we have seen in your work, the work that you have been doing. And he also said, you cannot tolerate evil people. Now today, when we hear the word tolerance, it means a cacophony of things. Right? There's, there's nothing that we can say is evil or wrong or bad anymore. Everything is uh, meant to, to be open. You know, we, we can do whatever we want. Right? We were meant to tolerate other people's 
beliefs and their desires and however they want to live their lives. But the problem with that is that Christians cannot tolerate evil. Right? Evil is anything that goes against the nature and character of God. And so when we say that this is wrong, it's not saying that that's my personal preference. It's saying that this is something that God Himself has stated that we cannot engage in. And so that doesn't mean that we mistreat people. It doesn't mean that we treat people poorly. But we, we cannot call wrong things right simply because it might save someone's feelings from being hurt. Right? We cannot call wrong things right simply because it might save us from experiencing difficulties or being uh, put into uncomfortable situations. And so what they saw was there's all this rampant idolatry going on in this city and we are opposed to that idolatry. So they stood firm in saying, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is evil. And because of that, they were persecuted, which is why they needed the endurance. But they stood firm in saying, we will not tolerate your evil works. And it's rampant everywhere. In chapter 1 of the book of Romans, verses 18 to 23, Paul says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse." For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And so Paul is stating that people across the world then and now, are constantly being deceived by the world. They constantly look at the world. They in, intentionally push the things of God away, and they purposefully uh, try to worship things resembling mortal man, four-footed animals, reptiles. So maybe not quite as much in our culture. We don't lift up these statues and worship these statues, but we worship things like power. We worship things like sex. We worship things like prestige. And he's saying that people across time have always done this. And we cannot fall into the, the lie that just because it's becoming more and more palatable for the culture to do these things, that we can then say, well, I guess it's okay then. Just because more and more people are becoming okay with certain types of evil doesn't mean that we can then say, all right, well, maybe God had, was wrong about this. And so the church in Ephesus, they were standing firm, even amidst all the persecution, they were standing firm in saying, no, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is evil. And lastly, he says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. So even before Paul left in Acts chapter 20, he said, there will be people that will come and attempt to deceive the church. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. 
Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And so he promised. He said, guys, look, there are going to be people that come in among you that are going to try to deceive the church. And so he says that they have done well testing those who have come in. They've called themselves apostles, uh, but they're not. They're lying. So how would they have tested to see if those apostles were real or not? Well, how well do they line up with the Scriptures? Right? If, if the Word of God is our ultimate authority in this life, how would these men line up with the Scriptures? Are they teaching the Bible? Right? Or are they teaching what people want to hear? Right? Are, you, are they professing what's true in the Word of God? Or do they like to make people happy with what they're saying so they might cherry-pick some of it? Because some of it's great. Right? When you hear all about how loving God is and how much He wants you to be with Him and all this, but there's nothing in there about your sin and the correction for sin, and the need for a Savior. Like we, can, we could build up uh, you know, a thousand people really fast if we just talk about how much God loves you and how much God wants to bless you, and how if you have just enough faith, you know, money's coming your way. But it's deceptive. So is what you're saying, does it, does it line up with Scripture? Or is it stuff that people want to hear? Or are, are they teaching the Bible? Uh, or are they teaching things that would help make their own gain? Right? Do you want a blessing? I'll give you a blessing. Right? All you have to do is send me uh, you know, a low, low price of $99 and I'll wipe a sweat rag across my face and I'll give it to you. It's, it's been prayed over and it's holy sweat. All you got to do is send me some money and you will, I will send you blessing through prayer. And here's the thing. If it doesn't work out for you, it's because you don't have enough faith. Right, you that you're the problem, not my sweat. Okay, so are they preaching the Bible, or are they preaching for their own gain? Are they preaching to find out, you know, to get their own power, to get their own prestige, to find to to pad their pocket? How how is it going? Paul warned Timothy in the second letter that he wrote to him that we have recorded. He said, "Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Stay true to the word." So if these apostles were really apostles, they would be staying true to the Word of God. And so the Ephesians know it. They know the Word, right? Because they will not tolerate evil. So they know what the law says about how people are supposed to act. And they will not tolerate these apostles who have come in. They said, hey, we're apostles. We're super apostles. And Paul says, you know, no, they're not. And you should know that because they don't follow the Scriptures, right? These are wolves in sheep's clothing. And the Ephesians have enough knowledge of the Scriptures to be able to say, yeah, that's not right. That's not what we find in the Word of God. So they're doing all of this right. right? They're working hard. They're laboring for the kingdom. Right? They're enduring. They're, they're dealing with the persecution that has been placed against them. They're, they're not tolerating evil. And they're testing these apostles. So all of this stuff is going well for them, uh, which is commendable, but they've lost something in the process 
of doing all these things. Here's what they got wrong. It says they abandoned the love that they had at first. So you're doing all this stuff right, and it's very commendable. But this I have against you. You have abandoned your first love. And he doesn't say what that is. But what, what could it be? It's not clear what the love is that he's referring to here. But let's consider the big two from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. And it's going to be one of these two things very specifically. Matthew 22, 34 to 40 says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command is the, in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So Jesus says very clearly that the entire Old Testament is pointing to two things. Number one, love God. Number two, love people in the same way that you love yourself. Right? Everything that happens in the Christian life should center around these two principles. Right? And if you are loving God well, you will love your neighbor well. Okay? Like if, if, if you're soaking in all that God has told us to do, and you're trying to pour that out in a way that honors the Lord, then you're going to love your neighbor well. You have to. If you're not loving your neighbor well, you cannot be loving God well. Right? If you're not doing acts of mercy and serving people, if you're not reaching out to people in their hardship and trials, if you're not being the hands and feet of Christ to the church and to the community, you cannot be loving God well because you are actively disobeying what God has said about loving your neighbor. The Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote this in 1 John 4, 7-21. Now, hear all of this talk of love. All right, it's all over this. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in Him and He in us. He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent His Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in Him and He in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Right? God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Listen closely. I know that was long and there's a lot of love in there. Okay? But listen closely to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. It doesn't get any more clear than that. 
If you say, I love God, and yet you have hate in your heart for a brother or sister, you are a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So this church, somewhere along the way, has lost their first love. Now maybe that means, it seems like they're staying pretty on track with their doctrine. Right? They know the Word of God. They're correcting people with the Word of God. Right? They're pushing out these false apostles that have come and brought this false gospel into their midst. And so they're saying, no, that's not true. That's not part of the Scripture. So it doesn't appear that their issue is doctrinal. Right? They know who God is and what God is supposed to be like. But it seems to me that what they have done is they have forgotten to love one another in the midst of their study of doctrine. That can happen in churches across the world in the blink of an eye without even meaning to. We become so focused on getting the Word of God right and being right that we can mistreat people even while we are doing all of this study of the Bible. Right? If you are studying the Scriptures with the sole desire to win an argument, to win a debate, to figure out, you know, should you baptize believers or should you baptize babies? Right? Does God choose some to be saved or is there free will for all of us uh, to choose as we wish? Right? Do you play this kind of music or do you play that kind of music? And you're searching the Bible so that you can win these arguments and yet you start looking at other people as the enemy, you are failing the church. You have lost your first love. Because even in your pursuit of the things of God, you can grow cold in your heart through the body of Christ. Look, the people in this room and the people at the church down the road, these are all people, if they have professed faith in Christ, these are people... Even though we might disagree with them, these are people that Jesus died for. These are people that Jesus thought enough of to lay down His life, to lay down His crown in heaven, to step into this earth so that He could live the life that we should have lived but couldn't and died the death that we deserve. That all happened because Jesus found value in these people. And when we look at these people, it should be with the eyes of that is a brother and sister in Christ. Like we're not competing with the church down the road. And we're not competing amongst ourselves in here. We should all have the same mindset of we want people to love God. We will fight for the truth. Like we're not going to tolerate evil. And we're not going to do that in the name of love. But when we're talking brothers and sisters in Christ, like the mission of God is of utmost importance here. We don't need to be as concerned with, do you believe exactly what I believe in my doctrine? Or do we hold the first-handed things together and we can go forth and push back the darkness of the world, the actual darkness? The way These people have lost that. They've gotten so caught up in their pursuit of right doctrine that they have forgotten to love each other. So what should they do? With the church losing their first love, what should they do? He, says, he gives three things there. 
What to do? Remember, repent, and resume. Remember, repent, and resume. He says, remember who you once were. Right? It wasn't always like this. There was a time when you were loving each other well. Remember that. Remember what that time looked like. Fulfill that promise to each other again. Get back to that place. Right? Figure out how to get back to being those people. And repent. Right? It is sinful for us. It is sinful for them to begin looking at people with disdain because they don't believe exactly what we believe. Their preferences might be different than my preferences and it is sinful for me to look at them with disdain. And so they've been called to repent. Right? Repenting means to turn from your sin. It's a 180 degree difference. I'm walking this way. If I repent, I'm walking that way. He's called them to repent and He says to resume. Resume doing what you know you are supposed to be doing, which is to love God and to love your neighbor. Remember who you were. Repent that you're not that anymore and get back to being that once again. What happens if they don't? Well, He says that too. Christ will come. He says He will remove their lampstand. Christ will come and remove their lampstand. They will no longer be a church. Remember, the lampstands represent the church. And Christ says, if you do not repent, if you do not get back to being the people who love one another, then I will remove your lampstand. That doesn't mean that these people might not continue to gather together. It might not mean that they might not gather together and sing praises to the Lord. But they will no longer be a church. They will no longer have the effective work of the Holy Spirit in their lives there. They will no longer have any power or authority to bind and loose uh, in this world what is bound and loosed in heaven. They lose all of their ability to do that. And what that means is that the, the church that's there, the people that continue to gather, will be completely ineffectual for the kingdom of God. Now, they'll go through the motions. Maybe, maybe for the rest of all of their lives. But Jesus says, if you do not repent and get back to what you are meant to be as the church, I will remove your lampstand. You will have no power in this world. So the application then. With each one of these churches, we're going to have the ability to take Oak Grove and we're going to hold it up to the churches in Revelation. So how do you think we're doing in this regard how is our first love going right are we loving each other well are we loving the people in our community well do we have this desire to pursue doctrine and to be right more so than we desire to be loving are we enduring are we weathering the storm of this world well or are we, because we want to be loving, we just kind of turn the other, the other way when someone, we see someone actively living in sin, we see someone actively doing something that we know for a fact is sinful, and because we don't want to get into that, either out of love or out of apathy on our own part, that we just continue to let them do what they want. We begin to tolerate evil. Right? Are, we, are we testing those who come to teach? I mean, you should, you should be listening to the words I say and you should be running that by Scripture and making sure that everything that comes out of my mouth is found in that book. 
And anybody that comes up here and speaks from this pulpit, you better be paying attention and finding out whether or not they are speaking the truth. Test and see if they should be speaking from this place. And lastly, are you, are you willing to repent if you have found yourself falling away from these things? And Jesus says if we do not repent of our sin, if we're not loving one another well, if we're not loving the community well, he, he says, I will remove the lampstand. Now, he's not writing this to us. He's writing this to the church in Ephesus. But we should be gleaning stuff from this because he's writing it for us. We have to have a balance in doctrine and in love. And if not, then we will lose our effectiveness to push back the darkness of this world. We will find ourselves gathering together week after week with no power. We will gather together week after week without seeing any lives changed. We will gather together week after week with no ability to bind or loose anything that's going on in heaven. So where are we? Keep that in your mind as we pray together. Father, it is my desire that we would be a church that honors you and brings you glory in all that we do. I pray that we have balance in our doctrine and in our love for one another. That we have balance in our doctrine and our love for the community. And I pray that if there is things in this church that we need to repent of collectively as a group, that you would show us that, that we would be uh, willing to turn from that, and that we would find ourselves um, standing firm as a lampstand in this place for the community for many years to come. Lord, I ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.